All right, so we're going to finish up with 2 Peter tonight. Um, so if you've got your own copy of Scripture, uh, you can look at that, or it'll be up here on the screen. Um, in fact, I printed my notes. I ended up printing all of my notes for 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3, which is 20 pages of notes. You guys don't want me to go back through all of that, probably. It might take a while since it's probably been about... All right, um, so we just concluded the passage um, where he talked about uh, what these scoffers were saying, uh, that uh, they were saying, oh, you know, the Lord's not coming back. Everybody's been saying the Lord's coming back forever, and, you know, it, it, you know, things are going on the same way they've been going on ever since the beginning of time. And then Peter says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, which is a good memory verse for you, 2 Peter 3, 9, right? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is a theme throughout Scripture. It's even a theme in um, um, the, some of the, uh, uh, the apocryphal books. Uh, in fact, my can, what I may do next is go to Jude. Jude is very like Second Peter, but... Unlike 2 Peter, Jude quotes two apocryphal works, okay? Um, and uh, if, we, if we do Jude, then I'll talk about that. But in one of those, it's called uh, oh, the something of Enoch. I can't remember what it's called. But in any event, it has the same idea of the world burning up and, you know, the Lord returning. So this is, this is not some, you know, novel idea even in the New Testament era. This goes all the way, if you look at Isaiah, this goes all the way back, that the Lord is going to return, the day of the Lord is going to happen, and that's going to be an extreme time, not just with the beast and one world government and so forth, but with what's going to go on with the earth and in the heavens and so forth. And I think I mentioned previously, um, in I think it was the year 2000, or thereabouts, 2001 maybe, uh, that movie Armageddon came out. Do you remember that? Had Bruce, Will Bruce Willis, was it Bruce? I think it was Bruce Willis in it. And uh, um, it was about an asteroid coming toward the earth. There's a, there's a piece at the very beginning of that. And uh, it, uh, it talks about what happened during the Jurassic era, what brought the the end of the dinosaurs, right? And interestingly, it graphically shows what would happen as an asteroid approaches the earth. And I remember teaching from Revelation at that point in time thinking, that's what this is talking about. So, um, yeah, if it comes to that, I'll, I'll get that little piece of video and I'll play it and we'll talk more about that. And that's another thing that I could do is, is look at, at those passages in Revelation and and show you the comparisons of why I think that the end that is spoken of with these cataclysmic cosmic events may well be relating to an asteroid coming toward the earth. Um, in any event, I mentioned that because here we have Peter saying in Second Peter, and I already went over this last week, so I'm not going to go over this in detail this week. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, which means you're not going to expect it, Right? You don't expect a thief to break in. And Jesus said, you know, uh, that uh, his return would be like a thief in the night, right? Uh, or maybe that was Paul that said that about Jesus. The idea being you don't expect this to happen. You don't know. You can know that something's going to happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen, okay? So that's the idea of, of coming like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So that's pretty extreme. I'm hoping that doesn't go down in my lifetime. <laughs> since all these things, not if, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's really the question of the whole book. 
why are you following these false teachers, he's saying, because judgment day is coming, and they're going to be judged. The end is going to come. What kind of people should you be? How should you act? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, there's the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Wow. So this is, this is an extreme heat that would melt even the elements, right? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you see all of these pseudoscientific documentaries about, you know, what will happen, you know, a million years from now when everything grinds to a halt and, you know, the earth without people and all this other stuff. We know how this is going to end and it's not going to just grind to a halt and there's not going to be a time when the earth is without people until God just brings everything to a conclusion. And then there will be no earth as we know it and no atmospheres. Everything will be destroyed and renewed, right? So we're not going to be floating around in space or something, right? We're not going to be in a bodiless existence. There's this idea that, you know, once we die, we, we don't have bodies. We're just going to be in this bodiless existence for eternity. That's incorrect. Jesus rose from the dead in a body, an incorruptible body. That means a body that was, that was and is. He's still in that body, incapable of getting sick, right? Um, capable of transcending our space-time continuum because Jesus suddenly appeared in rooms. He's there. He basically passes through the wall, you know. He's eating with some people, and he suddenly disappears. So obviously, this new body is fit for God space, if you will, right? Um, so what kind of people should we be in waiting for that? All right, now we're going to get to uh, this evening, Second Peter three fourteen through 18. <clears throat> now I have that printed, so I don't have to look at the Bible on my phone. Therefore, beloved, isn't it cool that we're called beloved? Be loved, you are loved. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and see, that's encouraging. He's not saying, you need to wait for these things. You need to do this. No, he says, since you're waiting for these things, I know you're waiting for this, right? So you, you and I need to get that. Just because you get a challenging word or a word of admonition, that doesn't mean that the preacher's picking on you. It doesn't mean, you know, when I read a challenging passage in Scripture, that doesn't mean that the Lord has lost faith in me and, you know, uh, that I'm going to lose my salvation or something. We need to be reminded of these things regularly, Okay. It just, you know, we're, we're children. Think about how you talk to your kids. Do you just tell them something once and then forget it? No, you have to tell them over and over and over and over, right? And even when they, when they know it, you still want to remind them of the things that are important, okay? Now, Mateo, don't walk across the street without us. Mateo, look both ways. I know, Dad, but you're still going to remind him because you don't want him to walk out on the street because they're apt to just be looking down and not be looking around, right? That's us. So we get these. Be diligent, okay? This is that, that Greek word, spude, right? It means be earnest, have zeal, right? It means put some hustle in your faith. Get busy. Don't just sit around. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Well, that's we're going to face him in judgment. So we want to head toward judgment by getting rid of all of these sins and all of these weaknesses and frailties and failures that we have. We want to go through this process of day-by-day -day perfection, right? Holiness, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing, not just sitting around and doing nothing. No, we're, we're pressing forward. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on, like a race. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? So if you're in a race, you don't sit down. You run. Now, fortunately, in this race, we're not racing each other. You're just trying to get to the end. You're just trying to make it to the finish line. Right? That's, that's the goal. The goal is not to beat other people in this race. The goal is to keep running. And if you ever run for any sort of distance, you know that, you know, you kind of reach an, an end to your level of endurance and you just want to quit, you know. But 
if you're not in if you're not in super good shape, then what you what you learn to do is you learn to run for a while and walk for a while and run for a while and walk for a while. That's your Christian faith. You don't have to run all the time, but you have to keep moving. You're not going to make all this progress every day. Sometimes you'll make less progress, but you're still making progress. You're still moving forward. You don't quit. You don't give up, right? Um, and count the patience. This is really good. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Wow. He's patient. He hasn't brought it all to an end. He hasn't returned yet either. So count that as salvation because we've already heard in 2 Peter 3, 9 that um, he's not just waiting around, but he is patient with you, not willing, not wishing, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we're not saying, well, Lord, where are you? Where are you? The world's getting worse. We're saying, no, he wants more people to come to him. He wants more people to repent, to change their hearts and change their minds. And then he says, as just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. There are some things in them, that is in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. We're going to talk about that. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. So now he returns to the point of the letter. Don't follow these fools. Um, don't be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, right? Your own established place. Once you believe, keep believing. Don't let the changes in the world knock you off your course. Stand firm. That's what we've got to do. Be stable. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Michael Green in uh, the Tyndale New Testament commentary writes of this conclusion, because it is only righteousness that will survive in the new heaven and the new earth, it is imperative that Christians live righteously. The look of hope must produce the life of holiness. Oh, that's a good preacherly statement, but that's easy to remember. The look of hope, oh Lord, I'm just looking forward to you coming back so much, should produce a life of holiness. Such is always the requirement of biblical, ethical monotheism. That's what belief in God is called, ethical monotheism. Not just that there's one God, but that there's one God who has a moral law and he expects us to follow that moral law, right? It was the link between belief and behavior that the false teachers had broken. Their hopes were earthbound, their lives immoral. Peter never tired of stressing the this-worldly consequences of the otherworldly look. That's good, man. That's why I, that's why I put it there. <laughs> Better than I could say it. So I'll just read what he said. So what then is your response to these realities? Be diligent, be earnest, right? Okay, have some zeal. Don't just let your hands hang limp and look at your shoes as you shuffle along. Know that God's got things in hand. So I didn't want the election to turn out the way it's turned out, but it's turned out this way. Am I gonna worry? I'm not gonna worry, okay? I'm just gonna anticipate that God's got a purpose behind it and he's gonna work his purpose. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be difficulty. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have to fight for our freedom. But you know what? God's got it all in hand. He knows what he's doing. And I could make some suppositions about this. Honestly, I really thought that there was a good possibility Biden was going to win. I didn't think that the polls were accurate, and they were grossly inaccurate. I mean, in places, there were certain places where they had Biden leading by like 15 points, and he won by like one percentage point. So they were they were not in they were predicting a blue wave that Democrats were just going to sweep. No, that didn't happen either. The country is pretty evenly divided. As it has been really since the year 2000. If you remember all the way back to 2000 when George W. Bush won, it came down to uh hand-punched votes in Florida. You remember that? 
And so now we have this election, and it's come down to a couple of battleground states and these late-coming mail-in votes. You know, well, Trump is going to sue, and, you know, he should make sure that it's, it's legal. But if it's legal, then he lost. Okay. So then God's got a plan, in my opinion. And my, my uh, I guess, hypothesis, we'll say, I'm not claiming to be a prophet or the son of a prophet, but my hypothesis is my, what I think that uh, will happen is after two years of the totalitarian left pushing everybody into a variety of different positions, um, tamping down free speech, uh, taking away people's Second Amendment rights, that will happen, by the way. Kamala Harris guaranteed that in a Harris administration, which is ironic because that's not who we elected, but nonetheless, uh, that uh, she would make executive orders banning assault weapons and banning, you know, all these sorts of things. Okay, you know, I, I think the Second Amendment is legitimate, but it's not guaranteed in the Bible, so I'm, I'm okay with all that, right? Uh, I don't think it's a great idea, but what I'm more concerned about is these folks using COVID to shut churches down. We already see that happening. We see it happening in California. We see the extreme measures taken by Governor Whitmer in Michigan. And now you basically have Governor Whitmer and uh, uh, other Democrats like that that are going to be ruling the country. So what I think is going to happen is people are going to be so sick of this in two years, you're going to see a red wave. And then in four years, maybe, we'll see a more balanced president. At least that's my hope. Unfortunately, since Trump's only had one term, he could run again. So, oh my gosh, this is like, it's like, no, please, enough is enough. Let somebody else do it now. All right. So it doesn't matter who's in power. I'm not, I haven't been relying on the federal government anyway. I've just been thankful that we've had some, some freedom that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, so as for you and I, we should leave no sin unconfessed or unrepented of. We should be at peace with one another. This is what it says here in the scripture. And we need to set our hope completely on the coming of the Lord, not temporal passions, pleasures, and pursuits. Temporal meaning temporary, right? Earthly. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So remember that that's why Jesus has yet to return, and that's why God's wrath is withheld for the salvation of all who believe. Count it. Count that patience as salvation. Then he says, as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you. Well, where did Paul write that? Well, interestingly, there's a couple of passages in Romans don't explicitly talk about the return of the Lord, but talk about God's patience being for the purpose of repentance on our part. Listen to what it says in Romans 2.4. Paul is in the midst of this discussion about sin, and he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, that's God's kindness, and forbearance, right? So that's a word that we don't often use. What is forbearance? Just another word for patience, right? It means putting up with stuff. Again, those of you that had kids, you put up with a lot of stuff, right? So, you know, we, yeah, we put up with all sorts of stuff, don't we? If we're, if we're Christians, we put up with all kinds of stuff. I find myself getting irritated sometimes over things that I don't even understand why I'm getting irritated. So I'm in the gym and I'm in the locker room and there's this guy talking like this. He's like a radio announcer over there. And he's just, and I'm just like, dude, 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 dude. And then I'm thinking, Daryl, why are you getting so irritated by this guy? But I just wanted to get out of there. I'm like, stop. I, I don't want to hear you right now. You know, something, why? No, I need, I need patience, forbearance, put up with it right? The guy's not doing anything wrong, except I think what it is, is I don't like it when people who are adults and know better call attention to themselves perpetually. Like people, those of you that are out here on the square know this, that, that drive by in these vehicles and they've got these loud sound systems and they're just cruising around. I, I, I don't, I don't want to listen to your music. I really, I just don't. They do. And I'm going to tell you what it is. It's almost always, almost 
to the person always males. You want to hear what it is? It's territorial behavior. It's just like a dog peeing on. It's exactly what it is. Your dog, your dog goes around peeing on everything. Why does your dog pee on everything? Because it's, he has a small bladder. That's how they mark their territory. Dogs bark, saying, back away. This is my territory. This is why, by the way, yelling at your dog doesn't work. Because the dog reads that as you barking back at it. It doesn't work. Shut up. Shut up. It's, it's just a battle. In the gym, what it, what it is is you've got these great big guys and they're throwing the weights down and stuff. It's territorial behavior. It's, this is mine. This is my territory, right? Classroom. We would see this in the classroom. Especially as a sub, you're the new guy on the block. You have to immediately establish control that you are the alpha in that room. But what's going to happen there's going to be one or two kids that are going to come into every classroom and they're going to try to be the alpha. And so they're going to be loud. They're going to move around the room. They're going to disobey instructions because they're telling you, no, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. So it happens all the time. It's territorial behavior, right? And it's irritating to me, right? Now, when people get a little inebriated, then their inhibitions are lowered and they start getting louder and louder. And this is why you see this in bars. So I've gone over here before and I go over here less and less because although I like John and Alice, they're nice people. They're the ones that own it. I'm not just a super big fan of most of the clientele in there. I was in there the other night. I decided to just go in there and read, right? Going to sit down, have something to drink and read. And these guys at the bar are getting louder and louder. F this and F that and mother F and this. And I'm like, you know what? I just, I don't, I'm not interested. Not interested. So I just walked up to the guy and handed him, you know, my money. And I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm done. And I just walked outside and sat out, out here. And he came and tried to give me my change. I was like, no, 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 you, you keep that. And he said, hey, man, I'm sorry. I said, hey, it's a bar. What do you do? Well, they don't want it to be a bar. Technically, you can't have a bar in Garland, but it is a bar. That's what it is. It is a bar. So just expect it, right? I'm just telling you these are the sorts of things that irritate me and that I have to have forbearance. So I probably shut the door a little too loud as I walked out. But I didn't yell at anybody in there. That's their, that's their deal. Now, when the previous owners had it and it was the State Street Pub and Grill, it, it got out of control, out of control in there. And I remember one afternoon, I hadn't been in there in forever. One afternoon, I went in there. And I'm not kidding you. I thought that, you know, this sort of stuff passed away back in, you know, elementary school when we were on the playground and kids would challenge each other. There's a guy sitting at the bar, and I'm not kidding. I walk in, and he turned around like this and just stared at me. Again, territorial behavior. You know, you're in my bar. What are you doing in my bar? He didn't say that. He just looked at me like, and this is what happens between males and why they get in fights. And if you're wise, then you know outside of church, you don't look a guy in the eye for a very long period of time or they assume you want to start a fight with them, right? even if you're looking them in the eye for a good reason. They, now, these days, with people with their masks and their fear, if you look people in the eye, they just they immediately turn away and look down like your COVID germs are coming out of your eyes. I, I, had, this, I had this kid, I say kid, he's probably a teenager, and I think he might have been a, a, like a lifeguard um, at uh, Lifetime. And I try to look people in the eye when, you know, when I walk by them, and this kid is walking into Lifetime, and, you know, so I just looked at him, in the eye, and he immediately, this is what he did, he went. <laughs> looked away from you? Oh, yeah, it was, it was like, almost like I had offended him big, by looking at him. He just, oh, okay, well, there you go. So, 
But interestingly, the scripture says, uh, Paul says, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. See, God's patience is his kindness, right? It's not God coming down on you and hammering you and punishing you um, because of your sin. This is what Job's friends were telling him he had done. Well, Job, you obviously have sinned. That's the problem. His three friends were patient with him for seven days because his situation was horrible, and then they just lit, up, lit him up. They just basically said, you know why you're going through all this trouble? Because you're a loser and you sinned. You know you have, admit it. And Job just said, no, I have not. And I wish God would just pay attention to me, and he was upset with God. Now, God confronted Job, and he admonished him strongly, but in the end, God said, I am not pleased with you three friends and what you've told Job. And so Job prayed for his friends, and then Job was restored. And he was restored, everything that he had had previously was restored twofold, except for his children. And I've, I've heard preachers say this, and I really like this. The reason that he didn't have twice as many, he, he, his children were essentially restored, not the same ones, but he had that many kids again, um, like seven boys and three girls or something. But the reason that they weren't uh, restored twofold is because he still had the other children. They were just waiting for him on the other side, right? So that's kind of cool. Um, in any event, but Job said at the, at the end, after God had confronted him, he said, my ear had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, the result of all of Job's trouble and trials and difficulty was a new vision of God, a deeper understanding of God, a perception of God that he never had prior to that. And really, one of the lessons of Job for me is um, God's not scared of your questions. You see, there are people that question God to push him away. They just want to get away with whatever they want to get away with, do what they want to do. And they, they say, ah, oh, I don't believe God exists, or this, this, and this, one. But, you know, if things are not going the way you want them to go, then talk to the Lord, right? Um, there, was a, uh, there was a preacher that, uh, well, he was a youth speaker back when I very first came to um, Garland. And uh, he preached at the very first youth camp that I took our teenagers to when I was at the, the church across the way over here. And this was when Craig and Rachel were in the youth group. I don't know that Rachel went that year. I can't remember, but I'm, I'm sure Craig did. Craig regularly got grounded from lock-ins because of his mouth. But he didn't get grounded from camp, so he went to every camp. But this fellow's name was Dave Busby. Interesting-looking character. Um, he had great big arms. Not a very tall guy, pretty short guy. Great big arms, right? Pretty good-sized chest. But small, thin legs. And he looked kind of a little bit bow-legged. Now, I'm not trying to say that to make fun of him or anything like that. As it turned out, um, I can't remember what he had had as a child. He wasn't old enough to have had polio, but it was something like that. It just he he had had to wear leg braces when he was was a child, okay. But he had cystic fibrosis, and at that point in time, um, people would die from cystic fibrosis at 30, 35. And uh, I don't know how old he was, but he had already outlived that when he was a youth speaker. And so I'm telling you all this about this guy because I want you to understand the credibility that he had to make the statement that I'm about to repeat. He'd been through a lot of trial and trouble and difficulty and pain in his life. Cystic fibrosis, if you're not familiar with it, is a lung disease. So um, COVID attacks the lungs. If it makes it past the throat, makes it down to the lungs, it attacks the lungs, and then people get pneumonia, and then they have an increasingly more and more difficult time breathing. People with cystic fibrosis um, have their lungs fill up with fluid. 
And so they have less and less lung function. Um, so that first year when we saw Dave Busby, one of the statements that he made was, you need to let God pull you into his chest, even if that means that you beat on God's chest. Just think about, you know, a little kid. They're mad. They're mad at you, right? And you pick them up, pounding on your chest, but then they just wear out and then just get tired and fall asleep. Sometimes we just don't understand. This world is difficult. It's fallen. There's so much trouble. There's, there's just so many things going on in our personal lives, in the government, you know, I just all around us all the time. This ain't heaven. Stop expecting it to be. This ain't heaven. That's our problem. We keep trying to turn this into some utopia, and it's not. Now, it doesn't have to be hell either. It's more like purgatory. There's no real purgatory except this, right? So there's, praise God, there's not like some temporary hell that you've got to endure after you die, as Catholics would hold. That's not a biblical concept. But that you have to suffer through this life, it's the theme behind First Peter. That's why I taught on First Peter last time, because of all the COVID drama and everything people were going through. So we're going to go through all of these difficult times. But the purpose is for us to draw closer to God. Don't be scared to ask God questions. And don't be put off if you don't get the answer you wanted. He does. He does. Yeah. yeah. Amen. I, I'm one of his, uh, Amen. Right, right. And that's good that we can have that kind of relationship with him, right? That's exactly what we want. So that patience equates to salvation is really uh, embedded in the Scripture when it concerns Jesus coming the first time. It says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That means that uh, Jesus... Uh, is the atoning sacrifice, right? God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had left the sins previously committed unpunished. He'd passed over the previous sins. So the reason why God didn't pour out his wrath beyond Noah it's because we were waiting for Jesus to come and shed his blood on the cross and turn away the wrath of God. And that's why the wrath of God is turned away from all of those who put their faith in Christ. But if you reject Christ, there's nothing left except to pay the penalty for your own sin. So that's why we want to be in Christ. We want to embrace Christ. Um, but that, that passage, that's Romans 3.25, reinforces Peter's point that God's patience equals salvation. Um, once again, I'll, I'll read a sentence from Michael Green in the New Testament, the Tyndale New Testament commentary. Peter may be alluding simply to Paul's constant teaching in all his letters about the need for holy, patient, steadfast, peaceable living, especially in light of the parousia. That's a word that means the return of Christ. So, that's what Green is saying about as our beloved Paul wrote to you. If these verses that I have read to you are not the what he's thinking of, and they likely are, then he's alluding to the fact that in all of Paul's letters, he's saying you need to live these lives of holiness in full expectation of the return of Christ. All right, then he says, uh, Paul says this in, uh, as he does in all his letters, and then he says, as they do the other scriptures, right? So already Peter is calling Paul's letters scripture. Well, for the Jewish people, scripture was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, um, beginning with uh, the Pentateuch, the law, and then going into the prophets, they called them the former prophets and the latter prophets, and then the writings, Job for, is, an, is an example of the writings. 
but those collected writings are the scriptures, right? And the Jewish scriptures, the ones that were accepted, that were written in Hebrew, became the Christian scriptures. Now, there were also some later Jewish writings that were not in Hebrew, but in Greek, that were accepted by many early Christians, but not all, and they are not accepted by many Christians today, more conservative Christians today, and those writings are called the Apocrypha. And the reason that we don't accept those is uh, if you get a Catholic Bible, you'll find the apocryphal books in the middle. Now, they're interesting for the purpose of history, but they're not inspired like the scriptures are inspired, right? And I'll talk about this in just a moment, but um, when, I, when I or you read scripture, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to lift that, those words off the page and give us understanding. And um, I have told you previously, I, I read these, um, uh, these uh, lists of, of scripture every day. Um, one from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and one of the uh, often, in fact, here lately, there have been passages that have come from the Apocrypha, okay? Um, you know, the wisdom sayings and so forth. And I just, honestly, I don't read those. I just, I skip over those, right? But Anglicans and Episcopalians, like Catholics, accept those apocryphal books. And I just, yeah, I don't. Um, so, um, nonetheless... Notice that Peter recognizes the authority of Paul and the inspiration of his writings as equal with the rest of the Old Testament scripture. That's, that's pretty significant this early in time. Right? Second Peter was written inside the first century. Probably, you know, it depends on your, the interpreter and what they think of Second Peter as to when it was written. But if it is by Peter, then it was written before A.D. 70. And already these letters that Paul was writing were recognized as Scripture. That's pretty uh, significant testimony as to the authority of Paul's writing, okay? So this is at a time before the full New Testament was even written. So at the point that Peter's writing here, Revelation hasn't been written as an example. That's for sure. Um, and there may be other New Testament books that were not even yet written. It is possible, in fact, it is plausible, that the Gospel of John wasn't written at this point. The synoptics came early, but the Gospel of John, John lived the, the longest, right? So all of the Johannine literature is, is later because he was younger and he wrote later. Um, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's also likely the last book that was written. But the Gospel of John was written pretty late. It was likely written after A.D. 70. Okay? So already these letters of Paul were being recognized as Scripture. Now here's something else. Um, with the exception of the Gospel of Mark, Matthew and Luke and John were written after at least half of Paul's letters. So when we look at, for, for instance, when we read Galatians, Galatians may be Paul's earliest letter. It was written before the Gospels. Now, that doesn't mean that what was in the Gospels wasn't being passed around. It was, because we're told that Mark is written by John Mark, who is a companion of Peter, and wrote down Peter's preaching. So Peter is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, recollecting what Jesus said and reciting what Jesus did, again and again and again, and Mark is along with him, and Mark is writing that down, and that becomes the Gospel of Mark, which becomes the first Gospel. That is the kernel, the, the, the basic structure of both Matthew and Luke. The majority of Mark is contained in Matthew. Now, the order is not in the order that they were written, or you would have Mark first. But if you've ever done your, your reading, you said, I'm going to read through the Bible. I think I'm going to start with the New Testament. You open it up. All right, Matthew. 
and you start reading, there's this genealogy. Well, okay. So-and-so, we got so-and-so. Okay. And then you have something you recognize. You're like, oh, the birth narrative. You know, you recognize the whole thing and the wise man and all that other stuff. And you start getting into it. So you read all the way through Matthew. Got 28 chapters. And you're like, okay. Next gospel, Mark. You start reading Mark and you're like, hey, I already read that. Wait a minute. I, I already read that. And I, I read that. And I, and I read that. It's because Mark is, the majority of Mark is in Matthew, right? And then you get to Luke, and you're like, hey, you have this long birth narrative at the very beginning of Luke, but then you start getting into the same material, and you're like, wait a minute, I just, I read this, I've read this twice. Now, Luke has got some additional interesting material, because what we find, if we read uh, the introduction to Luke, is that... Um, Luke is dedicated to someone named Theophilus, and it is apparently, uh, this may have been an individual like a, a wealthy Christian who uh, paid, uh, you know, to have this written or for whom it is, you know, it was dedicated. A lot of times books are dedicated to people. That doesn't mean it was, it was written for them. It's just that's what it's dedicated to, right? But Theophilus is just a word that means God lover, okay? Theos, philos, or a friend of God, right? Um, so nonetheless, uh, Luke wrote two works that were originally connected, Luke and Acts. They belong together, but they're separated by John. So again, the order of our New Testament can sometimes throw you off as to when they were written. But Luke and Acts are part one and part two of the same writing, okay? Um, book one and book two, okay, essentially. Because he, you know, when you get to Acts, he says, in my first book, O Theophilus, you know, I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus began to say and do. And then, it's, it's interesting because uh, Acts is titled the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really pretty much the Acts of Peter and Paul. And if you look at the theme of Acts, I have heard it said, and I would agree, that it should rightly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because you begin in Acts chapter 2 with the Holy Spirit coming down, and then the Holy Spirit pushes the apostles out into the world, and you see what the Holy Spirit is doing in all of these different communities, right? But it is a uh, pretty much a history of Paul from chapter 13 on. So chapters 1 through 12 are Peter and the Jerusalem apostles, but from 13 on, it's the missionary journeys, and it's Paul, right? So again, those things were likely written. Um, Matthew uh, would have been written around the time some of Paul's letters were being written. Luke uh, was Paul's companion. Luke is written after Paul's letters because Luke is telling of the events that were going on in these different cities that these letters are written to. So we have information about Corinth. We have information about Ephesus. We have information about Philippi. Well, you see what's going on as Paul's letters are being written, and then Luke is probably taking notes on all this stuff because he's a historian. He's a doctor and historian. He's writing all of this stuff down as he's traveling around with Paul. And then we have this magnificent uh, historical document. It's, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Luke and Acts, awesome. Good stuff right? So um, the fact that uh, Paul's writings are already recognized as the scriptures in, you know, the 60s probably, uh, AD, is a clear indication that uh, the books of the New Testament were not decided on by the church hundreds of years later. So what you hear by the uninformed largely driven by information from such literary geniuses as Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, the novel in the early 2000s that had all these people convinced uh, that Jesus is essentially uh, an invention, uh, or the Jesus that we know is essentially an invention of his male disciples. And what they really wanted was to hide the fact that he was married to Mary Magdalene and that the church was supposed to be given to Mary, and this is actually a uh, hundreds of years old fraud that was perpetuated by some uh, 
French authors, and it was revived again in the 70s uh, by these, this guy that wrote this book, uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And then Dan Brown just, you know, brought all of these strands together in this, you know, crazy story, right? But out of that, you have people saying, well, the Emperor Constantine decided that, you know, the, the, the canon of Scripture. Okay, yeah, so that's nonsense, okay? Because we already have, within the text of Scripture, hundreds of years before Constantine, that the letters of Paul are recognized as Scripture by another letter that was obviously recognized, okay? So canon of Scripture, what, what, what is that? The term canon comes from a word meaning rule or standard of measure. So canon designates the accepted, authoritative, inspired writings. Listen to... Um, uh, these thoughts from F.F. F. Bruce in a book titled The Origin of the Bible. At first, the individual Gospels had a local and independent existence in the constituencies for which they were originally composed, right? So each Gospel was originally written to a particular audience. Uh, Mark is often believed to be focused on a Roman audience. It's very action-oriented, okay? Uh, Matthew is often recognized as uh, being for a Jewish audience. It has the most scripture quotations in it, which is why I encouraged uh, Pastor Craig to teach on Matthew after he went all the way through the Old Testament because it has so much Old Testament in it, all right? So that's what he's saying, that at first the Gospels were within those regions for and those groups. So probably Mark circulated in Rome, originally okay peter and paul were both in rome at the end of their lives so that makes a lot of sense okay um luke is recognized as the gospel for the gentiles uh it's focused on the gentile world so it's the the broader more international gospel if you will okay and uh then john focuses on establishing that jesus is the son of god all right so, for my money, John is my favorite gospel. So, anyway. Um, continuing. By the beginning of the second century, however, they, that is, the gospels, were brought together and began to circulate as a fourfold record, which, by the way, is the origin of what we call the codex or the book. See, they wanted to lay these gospels down side by side, and back then everything was in scrolls in order to have this massive amount of material laid out and put side by side, they created a codex, a book, sheets that were connected together. It is believed that the Gospels, the four Gospels, are responsible for every book you have. Otherwise, we'd still be reading scrolls, right? So, actually, now we're reading from our phones and stuff like that, but in any event... <clears throat> Then he talks about Paul's letters. He says, Paul's letters were preserved at first by the communities or individuals to whom they were sent. So, in other words, 1st and 2nd Corinthians would have been preserved in Corinth. Romans would have been preserved in Rome. Ephesians was probably preserved in Ephesus. Wait for it. But it wasn't written to the Ephesians. You say, wait a minute, but it's called Ephesians. Ephesians is a title that is attached to it much, much later, in all of the earliest versions of Ephesians, there's no title. But these were all preserved by given communities, and the church at Ephesus was a well-respected church where Paul spent over two years and the apostle John uh, spent his last years. So it is very likely <clears throat> that the title was attached because they were the ones that kept this letter that was a circular letter. See, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, but there's no personal information in Ephesians. There's personal information in Corinthians. There's even personal information in Romans, and he hadn't been to Rome yet, but he knew a lot of people that were going back and forth, but there's no personal information in Ephesians, which doesn't make a bit of sense if he had spent really close to three years there, yeah. right? Unless this was his major circular letter that was eventually entrusted to Ephesus to take care of, okay? Um, so they're preserved 
in these communities and or by these individuals to whom they were sent. So Timothy, the first St. Timothy would have been preserved by Timothy, right? By the end of the first century, there's evidence to suggest that his surviving, that is Paul's surviving correspondence, began to be collected into a Pauline corpus. That means all of his letters into a, a group of Paul's letters, which quickly circulated among the churches. All right, So this gives you an understanding of how the New Testament was circulating. It was already recognized as scripture, but they didn't have an explicit list. These are the books in the New Testament. No, they recognized this was authored by or authorized by an apostle, so we accept it. Okay? Now, Constantine, for the first time, made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire with the Edict of Milan in AD 313. He even went so far as to make it the official religion of Rome. He did call the first ecumenical council, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 BC. However, the emperor had nothing to do with the canon. Listen to me again. Emperor Constantine had nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. He didn't pick the canon. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church didn't pick the canon of Scripture either. The Roman Catholic Church didn't exist until at least the 5th century when they began to recognize uh, the Bishop of Rome as the chief of all of the bishops. Okay, So this idea that you have this all-powerful church that just decided you know, the canon, the church was persecuted all the way until the Edict of Milan. I mean, you have Emperor Domitian, Emperor Decius, Emperor Diocletian that killed Christians. They forced Christians to bring their books and burn them. They preserved those books because they believed that they were inspired writings from God, okay? So the first list of the official canon of Scripture came in the wake of those who were trying to say that there were books that were Scripture that weren't, and those that were trying to throw out books that were scripture, okay? Um, Saint Athanasius, in his festal epistle for 367, is the earliest exact witness to the present New Testament canon. Wow, that's a lot later. But that doesn't mean that those books were not already accepted. They just didn't have an official list until long after Constantine. So everybody needs to jump off the Constantine horse because it's a merry-go-round. It's just going around in circles, right? That horse isn't going anywhere. Um, a council probably held at Rome in 382 under St. Damascus, or Damasus, excuse me, gave a complete list of the canonical books of both Old Testament and New Testament. Both of those quotes came from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. All right. So, however, as our pleasant, present letter testifies, this doesn't mean Christians were left without authentic scripture. Genuine Christians have always had the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's what helps us to go through the day. That's what gives us wisdom to live our lives, right? Or that is, he is the one who gives us wisdom. Um, so we recognize God's word regardless of official church lists and declarations. I don't have to go back and say, well, what did Athanasius say in 367? Because I'm not going to accept anything unless Athanasius said it in 367. No. All right. As I said, you know, I, I'm I'm reading these uh, these uh, these books of the Bible, and you know, I encounter these uh, these apocryphal books, and I'm just reading them, and they're just they're I'm sorry, there's there's no inspiration. They're just dead. It's, I'm not, and sometimes they are, in if not outright disagreement, somewhat disagreeing with authentic scripture. So no, of course I'm not going to uh, find that acceptable. Um, listen to these uh, scriptures in John, but the first two quotations are by Jesus. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's why John is able to write such an extensive amount of information that Jesus said, because the Holy Spirit brought it to his remembrance. And the Holy Spirit is going to illumine Scripture to your understanding. So when you open the Bible and you don't understand it, don't worry about it. Pray about it. 
Let the Spirit speak to you, right? And then Jesus said a little further in John, that uh, quote was from John 14, 26. This is from John 16. All of these are uh, Jesus speaking on the Thursday uh, before the Friday he was crucified. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. All right? And these two quotes from John, now in his letter, 1 John, which was written before the gospel in all likelihood, and I may teach out of 1 John as well. Um, the direction that I think I want to go is I want to I I teach out of Jude, I believe, for the balance of the year, because we only have, there's six more Wednesdays in this year, and there's only four of them that we're going to be together on, because I'm not going to teach on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, because I don't know, there might be, you know, two people in here, right? <laughs> and I'm not going to teach the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's, so that leaves four Wednesdays. That leaves next Wednesday, and we jump over a Wednesday, because it's the one before Thanksgiving, and then three more Wednesdays. So that's enough to hit Jude. Then we get into the new year, and then maybe I'll, I'll go into First John. Pardon? Yep. It's crazy, isn't it? But here are these, here are these two from First John. This is First John 2.20. But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And then for uh, 2.27, but the anointing that you receive from him, from God, abides in you, that it means lives in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Well, that anointing is the Holy Spirit, all right? So this is how we recognize error and evil, deception and distraction. Not everything is blatantly evil, but the devil uses diversion to keep your attention away from the truth. You might not be chasing down some, you know, form of evil, but you can just be sitting around being distracted all day long. You know, somebody that just sits and plays video games all day. Here's my classic example of something that's not outright evil, but it just hit me wrong. It was just disturbing. So I don't, I don't have cable, don't watch TV, anything like that. Um, I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. Uh, I have YouTube Premium now, so I don't have to watch these advertisements. And uh, if you watch good stuff on YouTube, you'll get good recommendations. You don't get all this evil, you know, junk. Some, sometimes it's repetitive. But um, I think in the past I've watched some uh, monologue or something from SNL. So it's got this whole, you know, Saturday Night Live. So it was for, you know, it's right around uh, Halloween. It has this, uh, this sketch from SNL that has Tom Hanks. And it was, uh, the sketch was 100 Floors of Terror. And I don't know who the, the, the dude is. He is a funny, funny guy. Um, uh, is sort of like the, the elevator operator. And these two people get on and the elevator operator says, okay, here we go. And they're like, oh, I'm going to be scared. And, you know, so apparently this elevator just keeps going up 100 floors of terror and the door opens and somebody's like, Aah! and then the door closes, right? And, but then the door opens and then there's Tom, Tom Hanks and he's, what did he call him? David S. Pumpkins or something like that. And he's wearing this suit that's just got like, you know, it's black suit and it's got like these little pumpkins all over it. And then he's got these two little weird skeleton dudes next to him. And he keeps doing this, and they keep going, and all this. And it was just like, it was funny, and yet at the same time, it was just disturbing. It wasn't evil. You know, they weren't cursing or, you know, or worshiping Satan or something like that. It was just, just disturbing. And I didn't understand really why it was disturbing. To me, this is an example of how Satan can just niggle away. It doesn't have to be something evil, right? So your music, well, you know, when you listen to me, what do you listen to, okay? Um, on a rare occasion, I'll listen to some rock from the 80s, uh, you know, or from the 70s, but most of the time I just listen to worship music, right? I just, I don't want to give away my time always to the same, and even worship music can be repetitive and boring, honestly. I mean, you have to just have a wider variety because 
Yeah, there's just, there's, there's some worship songs that are just, it's fine when you're in church and you're singing it with them, right? But it's like when you're listening on the radio and it's same thing over and over. I'm, kind of, I'm like, dude, dude, dude. I get it. I get it. It's okay now. I, we've sung this. We've sung this chorus 335 times, so I'm good with that, right? Anyway, there's an uncleanness about what the devil inspires. Music, movies, video games, books, media coverage, educational perspectives. The Holy Spirit, though, will convict you and give you discernment about all of this if you pay attention to his leadership to your spirit, all right? So the end of the letter, we're warned not to be carried away by the error of lawless people, the false teachers who sought to use sensuality to gain followers, and we have the law of Christ, the law of love, and the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. We must repudiate heresy, even if it is culturally approved and promoted, and you're going to see it in the coming years. You watch. And we return to the theme of growth in Christ that was taught in chapter 1. Continue to grow in grace, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. To him be glory now and into eternity. Amen? All right, amen.